Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candace Gibson, joined by staff writer Jane McGrath. Hey there. Jane, when you think about presidential speeches, or really any speech in general, mm. there's essentially two different types of appeals that you can make to the members of an audience. You can make uh, a pathos appeals, and you're appealing to someone's emotions, or you can make an ethos appeal, and you're appealing to someone's morality and, and sense of ethics. Oh, I recall this from my rhetoric class. Yeah. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I took speech writing my okay. senior year of college, uh, spring semester, thinking it would sort of be a snooze, and it'd be, you know, a way to pass the time until I graduated, and it turned out to be a really tough class. Uh-huh. So Yeah, it was um, one of my favorite. I loved rhetoric. Yeah. 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 And <laughs> obviously, I, I've learned a lot about speech, judging from my uh, <laughs> lofty enunciation and <laughs> vocabulary. But the point being, um, a couple different presidents throughout history seem to have preferred one method or another, depending on the circumstances. And there's mm-hmm. some pretty memorable ones that speak to each of these different types of um, delivery. I think about the Berlin Wall speech, which we've had a podcast about before when mm. Kennedy said that um, he was a Berliner, or as some people have misinterpreted, he was a jelly donut. That definitely made a huge emotional appeal to the people of Berlin, saying, sure. I'm one of you. But when you come to something like ethos and a- appealing to someone's sense of morality, you think about someone like Abraham Lincoln. Definitely. Gettysburg Address, maybe. And that one even, I think, had a bit of an emotional resonance to it, too. But one of the most ethical proclamations he made mm-hmm. was the Emancipation Proclamation. That's true. And it's pretty interesting. Uh, in contrast to the Gettysburg Address, it was it, it was very legal. It was a legal document, and it was a military tactic, basically. And uh, uh, But like you said, it did appeal to morality at the same time, so there is that contrast in it. And if you read the Emancipation Proclamation, which we're not going to do for you because I think that was very lose you a couple yeah. lines through, it really is a bunch of legalese, and mm-hmm. it's 700 words long, and it actually didn't free any slaves at all. That's right. And uh, people say that, you know, it was kind of unnecessary because there were congressional acts that were already in place that, that said that, they, that whatever um, slaves that the northern... Uh, Troops I encountered, they would free if if they um, if they conquered that area. Right. So essentially, they set up the precedent that because slaves were property, if the Union troops came in and conquered the area, then they acquired all the property. The slaves being part of that. Yeah, and they'd be they would be free forever. And Lincoln said from the beginning to his cabinet and his advisors, he wasn't going to try to free the slaves because you know the country was in such a state of upheaval already, and his mm-hmm. biggest concern was you know. Uh, getting the seceded South, the Confederacy, to come back to the Union. And the cabinet had at least some support for the idea of gradual emancipation, that this would be something that could be, you know, slowly handed out over time, which is almost like, I have to mention him, of course, almost like the idea Thomas Jefferson had back in the day about (laughs) slavery, that eventually the institution would work its way out. But Lincoln one day... He was actually on the way to the war secretary's infant's son's funeral, and he was riding in a carriage with some of his top confidants, and he said, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm going to set the slaves free. But he did it in such a shrewd and calculated way that it 
really clashes in my mind with the image I've always had of Lincoln, which is this top hat wearing, scraggly bearded, sort of droopy eyed, sad, somber man. He was quite a politician with us. That's true. And it sort of flies in the face of most people's uh, ideal image of, of Lincoln in terms of someone who was out to free the slaves in the beginning. Like, like you said, coming back to your point, he didn't start this war with the intent of ending slavery in the South. And uh, he was against slavery. But um, like you said, he wanted to preserve the Union first and foremost. And he actually uh, stumbled into this situation uh, because it was a great military tactic to use. And he actually uh, calculatedly uh, used the time of immediately after the Antietam, the Battle of Antietam, which happened to be the bloodiest war in the Civil War, or the bloodiest battle, excuse me. And... um, and so at, after this happened, you know, the, the country is suffering, obviously. People are wondering, what are we fighting about after all? You know, and it's, it's fairly confusing what, what caused the war, and it's not exactly slavery that caused it in the first place. So when Lincoln uh, uh, put out the Emancipation Proclamation, it really focused everyone's mind on slavery itself. It did. It boiled down the cause of the war to slavery and Lincoln was advised by the Secretary of State, William Seward, not to deliver the proclamation until the Union had had a victory because in his mind, he thought it would look like the Union was claiming defeat to the world. And it's important to remember that at this time, the South was still getting support, uh, sort of surreptitious support, albeit from France and England. So uh, the Union wanted to make sure that Europe and the rest of the world knew it was still strong. And That's right. And I, I stumbled across that, and I, it made me think, like, why would these international powers support the South in the first place? And it's interesting because it, it was a lot about trade, because obviously Definitely. the South controlled the cotton. King and cotton. Yeah, yep. and actually it wasn't a too distant memory that, you know, the Second War of Independence, the War of 1812, it happened. And so they were still kind of hostile towards the United States at that time. And also um, there, was, there were questions and hostilities about the Canadian border, even more recently than that. So uh, England was uh, very quickly to jump on board to the South, but when when the, the war became about slavery, they couldn't do that anymore. Right, because they had decried slavery in their own country right. um, several, several years ago, and so they, they couldn't possibly be on board with mm-hmm. a country. It's important to remember at this time that the Confederacy was its own country, essentially. At least they considered it. At yeah. least they considered themselves that. And we should note that before the Emancipation Proclamation was delivered on January 1st, 1863, that's when it was laid down into law, supposedly. There was a preliminary one that came Mm -hmm. out on September 22nd, 1862. And in this version, Lincoln was trying to give the Confederacy a chance to rejoin the Union and as um, a gift with purchase, I guess, they could keep their slaves as long as they came back to the Union. That's right. He would work that out later on. But none of the Confederate states hopped on board. There were a couple of individual landowners who wanted to sign these sort of uh, one-on-one loyalty Mm packs. But Lincoln, he wasn't buying that. Yeah, it's interesting. This document goes down in history as like, oh, it freed the slaves, it freed the slaves. But at the same time, like, man, what was Lincoln doing here? He was he was giving the South an out. He was like, you can keep your slaves. That's right. what the document was saying. You can keep them, and uh, it'll be fine if you rejoin now, if you lay down your arms. And the reason there was such opposition to this, at least in the cabinet, was that they feared there'd be a total massacre and 
utter pandemonium in the South if the slaves were freed. I guess they thought mm. that they would, you know, wipe out the plantation owners and then they would storm up north and take all the northerners' jobs. And racism was just as prevalent in the north as it was in the south. And there were some who even postulated that the war was a conspiracy and all the northern soldiers were being killed so that the freed slaves could come up to the north and take their jobs. That's right. And that's to help to spur the their draft riots at the time, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the irony behind this was that even if the Emancipation Proclamation had freed all the slaves and it had accomplished that goal, you have to think about the way that information was disseminated at this time. It's not like we had CNN. It's not like we had (laughs) NPR. It took a while for the news to get out. And in some cases, at some plantations in places like the Florida Keys or even in Texas, the slaves didn't hear the news until well after Lincoln's assassination. That's right. And that's where we get the idea of Juneteenth. Uh, uh, It was a date where uh, June 19th, I should say, 1965 was the date that slaves in Texas actually first heard of the Emancipation Proclamation. And so that's when Texas actually celebrates that date. And when you look at the order in which the sla- uh, sorry, the states let go of the institution of slavery, you'll see mm. that the border states really were some of the last to uh, loosen their grip on the institution. That's right, and they were left out of the proclamation, right? It didn't apply to them at all. Right, and that was another political move. Lincoln knew that his hold on um, Congress was pretty tenuous, and he feared mm. that he would polarize the Republican Party and, and lose all the Republican support if he continued to push this idea of emancipating the slaves. And really, if if you listen to the detractors behind the Emancipation Proclamation's criticism, it was illegal. He was hmm. acting far out of his jurisdiction if you uphold the fact that the Confederacy was its own country at this time. And in our article about the Emancipation Proclamation on how stuff works, the author uses this really great analogy. She said, it would be like the United States saying to France, you have to outlaw smoking. <laughs> we don't really have the authority to say that to another country. Yeah, that'd be ridiculous. Yeah. And so Democrats and Republicans who were really trying to follow the Constitution to the letter told Lincoln, you can't do this. That's right. And Lincoln actually violated the Constitution, some say, uh, in many different ways. He, he withheld habeas corpus and, and stuff like this. But he sort of... Um, um, hid behind the idea that these were military tactics. And, uh, you know, to this day, Lincoln is a hero um, to most people in this country, and they defend him in these acts because they were military tactics. But back then, I don't think he satisfied a lot of people with right. the proclamation. The abolitionists wanted complete freedom of all slaves, and then the plantation owners, of course, wanted to keep holding on to their, their workers. So he didn't satisfy... Either of those he didn't satisfy groups. anyone. It's mm-hmm. like he was trying to walk such a straight line that both sides just completely scoffed at him. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, like we already mentioned, there were the conspiracies from the Northerners that thought all the slaves were just being sent up north to take over their lives. Right. But one aspect of this that was really brilliant, and it actually had a great immediate effect, was the fact that um, black soldiers, freed slaves, would... Uh, would join the North and uh, become soldiers. And there was about 180,000, I believe, that joined after the proclamation was declared. And the proclamation made it explicitly clear that freed slaves, or I guess all blacks in general, could join the armed forces. And I think that people were suspicious of their efforts at first, but they really proved themselves. I mean, obviously, this was a cause that they were perhaps the closest to. So... Mm -hmm. we know also when we look at the Emancipation Proclamation that it's, like we said, it's a bunch of legalese, but one of the boldest things about it, if you really get down to the language, is that it's written in present tense. And some of the drafts that Lincoln had made of the proclamation were written in future tense. Mm-hmm. But he reasoned, no, I want this to be 
immediate. I want it to be prescient and I, I want people to really stand up and, and pay attention. And if you think about it, that really would have grabbed people's attention. You know, yeah. hearing slavery spoken of as an institution of the past. It's not like a threat of the future day. that's kind of nebulous and may never happen. Right, mm-hmm. right. But perhaps the biggest ripple effect from the Emancipation Proclamation was that it dealt a severe blow to the Southern psyche because for the first time, poor white people in the South started to realize that their family members and, and their sons and themselves were dying so that wealthy white landowners could continue to build That's right. Their and they, they, if they didn't hold slaves, they don't have a stake in this. They might be anti-slavery even or, you know, get behind the South for other reasons, of the, like the rights of the states reasons. But now, after the Emancipation Proclamation, it's all about slavery. It really is. It really is. Like we said, an incredibly shrewd move. So it took a while for these effects to take hold in the United States. And then after the Civil War was mm-hmm. over, we know that things didn't exactly work out smoothly from there on out. When Andrew Johnson came into office after Lincoln's assassination, he was sharply criticized for being too lenient on the Confederacy because he was just trying to, you know, piece the Union back together as mm-hmm. Lincoln would have wanted. Right. And again, harsh criticism from his detractors. And if we look at what happened to the slaves after they were freed, we see it's still not a pretty story at all, constitutionally speaking, either. Yeah, that's right. There were contraband camps, I believe. I mean, these were these were camps that were meant to to protect the slaves uh, near um, northern uh, forts, but uh, at the time, like it, it ended up being not the greatest place to live. You know, these contraband camps, and it, and it ended up giving them not a very good living. At all, at all. And when we look at the laws that were passed in order to protect the newly freed slaves, we have the 13th Amendment, which officially abolished slavery, but it didn't give them citizenship. Then the 14th, it prevented states from holding out on slaves' rights without due process. And then the 15th gave all the freed slaves voting rights. And we know about the Jim Crow laws that would have mm. followed. And, yeah, and absurd, try to obstruct that. Yeah, and the mm-hmm. absurd tests that uh, blacks would be made to undergo at, at voting and polling stations and... So they weren't completely assimilated into the American mainstream until well after the Civil Rights Movement. Yeah, it was a long, painful process, but at least the proclamation started. Yeah, (laughs) and we may have uh, busted your view of the Emancipation Proclamation and maybe of Lincoln. Maybe now when you think of him, you won't think of him as the the sad, uh, (laughs) doe-eyed, wartime president, but you'll Mm -hmm. think of him as a very shrewd politico. Definitely. I know that my opinion has been changed of him. Yeah. And you can read even more about Lincoln and the Civil War and the families that were torn apart by the battle on HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. <laughs> 